So how many of you have seen the movie, The Greatest Showman? Anybody out there? That's where the song is from. It's a pretty amazing soundtrack. If you listen, you'll find out. And uh, The Greatest Showman, it is this somewhat true, definitely Disney-fied story of P.T. Barnum, who happens to be a universalist and one of the first major circus creators here in the United States. Now, the movie avoids altogether the very valid claims folks have made against him, who said he simply exploited the people he put on display using the very names they were called to bring in folks and raise money off of their experience. The movie doesn't talk about any of that, big surprise. Uh, but instead, it is a powerful story, a story of rags to riches, of triumph and acceptance and community that is built across lines of race and gender and class, and the music is fantastic. This song that you just heard is one that we sing pretty much every day in my house as we're getting ready to go to school and go to work, and it's awesome. So. Uh, in the movie, as Barnum is putting together his show, he brings together people who have been picked on and persecuted, and he makes their differences into something to be celebrated. There's, of course, the very short person, the very tall person, the giant, the person covered in tattoos, and in the case of the soloist of this song, the woman who appears to be black, who's larger in size, and who has a beard. The singer has lived much of her life in hiding, so when she steps forward out into the light, when she steps forward with a whole crowd of folks behind her who have also been persecuted and left out and spit on, and she sings, this is me, I am brave and bruised, there's a place for us because we are glorious, it is a vision that is incredibly powerful, and it's something that you find yourself just automatically wanting to be a part of. Now, Randy has told us that the choral music for this song sold out almost as soon as it became available, and I think you can probably tell why. The story of the song and of the person who's singing it in the movie is particular, and those particularities are very important. And the message of this song is not particular to any one individual. The message of the song and the feeling it creates is universal. Who among us doesn't want to know that we can be both bruised and brave? that we can be left out and shut out and still find a place for ourselves in community, in a community that sees all of who we are and loves us because of it. Who among us doesn't want to know that place, that message of hope and possibility, especially hearing it from someone in this film who has suffered so much already and who has plenty of suffering ahead in her life. This big, black, bearded lady there in the late 1800s, when she steps out and sings, this is me, and she claims her beauty and her power and her voice, when she uses her very body to step forward, she is making a way for herself. She is moving into the space that has been created for her by her ancestors, and she is creating a space for those who will come after her. Making a way for each other making space for one another with our literal bodies and lives, that is what I want to talk about this morning. I think it's essential if we are to be the long-haul people of faith that we claim to be, that we hope to be in this world. Let me tell you a little bit about what I mean. A couple of weeks ago, Reverend Justin and I went to Florida, don't feel bad for us, for a conference that's held every couple of years for Unitarian Universalist ministers. It's an opportunity for ongoing education and training, and I think maybe most importantly for us, it's an opportunity to attend worship services, to sing and be a part of something that we are not leading, and to just get filled up 
for a week. It matters so much, and it's important to say that Reverend Justin and I couldn't have been at that conference if it wasn't for Reverend Ruth, who was here with all of you and who made it possible and made a way for us to be at that conference. And during the last worship service of that week that we shared together, the Reverend Otis Moss III stepped up to preach. Reverend Moss is the senior minister at Trinity UCC, the largest unit. Ah, I was going to say Unitarian Universalist. It's not. The largest United Church of Christ church in our country. It's the church best known in recent history as the place the Obamas attended before they left the south side of Chicago and moved to the White House. Reverend Moss is widely known as one of the best preachers in the country. And when he got up to speak, he spent the first five minutes or so of his talk admitting that before this week together, he knew really almost nothing about Unitarian Universalism, but that he knew one thing, and he wanted to thank us for it. He knew that we were one of the few majority white denominations who had played a critical role in the civil rights movement in the 60s, and he wanted to thank us for showing up, for using our bodies, for responding to the call that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King put out for clergy to come to Selma, reminding me, of course, of a very own Minister Emeritus, the Reverend John Cummins, who answered that call. So Reverend Moss spent his first few minutes thanking us for what we had done, for the way that we had made for the civil rights movement to happen and to be a part of that. He reminded us that no leader and no people gets where they are going on their own, that no one succeeds or fails on their own, that always, always there are ancestors, friends and family and strangers that make a way for each of us in this world. He reminded us of the story that comes from the great African-American writer and preacher, storyteller, the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman. Thurman talks about a time when he was out walking in the woods one afternoon. He was out there just strolling and he noticed a man up ahead who was planting trees. It was an older man and he was just very methodically putting this group of trees in the ground. He had looked and he could see it was supposed to be a grove of pecan trees, but they were only about two feet tall. So finally, after watching this older man for some time, Thurman approached him and said, what are you doing? Why are you planting trees that are so small? You'll never live to see them grow any fruit on them. What are you doing? And the older man replied, well, uh, these are cheaper and I don't have a lot of money and this is what I can do. So Thurman questioned him again. He says, so you do not expect to live to see the trees reach sufficient maturity to bear even one cup of nuts? No, the man answers, but is that important? All my life I have eaten fruit from trees I did not plant. Why should I not plant trees to bear fruit for those who might enjoy them long after I'm gone? Besides, the one who plants to reap the harvest has no faith in life. All my life, I have eaten fruit from trees I did not plant. The one who plants to reap the harvest surely has no faith in life. This is surely a long haul view, surely a long haul kind of faith to know that all of our lives we are eating from trees we didn't plant, to plant for a future that we can hardly even imagine. Surely this is one of the ways we make a way for one another, one of the ways we make space for each other, even when it seems impossible to do so. Surely this is what the writer Joan Chittister was talking about in her words this morning when she said that some of the most worthy goals, the liberation of the poor, the equality of women, the humanity of the entire human race, 
These goals that are worth striving for, living for, dying for, finished or unfinished, for as long as it takes to achieve them, these are the goals worth working toward. No one action, no one life, no matter how beautiful or dramatic is going to get us there to these goals. No, she says, it will take a million lives dedicated to the long haul and heaped on top of one another. That is what it will take. A million lives, a million, million decisions made one after the other, moment after moment, if we are going to move those mountains. It will take each of us and all of those who have come before us as ancestors, and it will take us making a way for future generations. In his sermon to us, the Reverend Moss told us the story of Vernon Johns. Does anybody out there know the story of Vernon Johns? That's right, the choir does now. <laughs> you get the heads up on all kinds of stuff. It's fantastic. So Vernon Johns is a fantastic story. He's known to some folks as one of the people who made a way for the civil rights movement to be possible. He was a brilliant, gifted man, brilliant preacher, scholar, and he is somebody who demanded entrance into Oberlin College long before they had ever accepted a person of color in there. He did it by forcing his way into a conversation with the dean and by passing through every barrier the dean put up before him until finally the dan dean put up one last barrier. He grabbed a book off his shelf and he said, Vernon, translate this Greek into English right now. And Vernon did. <laughs> and then he was in to Oberlin College. So, I tell you about him because it's, it's he who the people of Dexter Avenue Baptist brought to their congregation in Montgomery, Alabama in 1947. They had brought him in to preach as a guest preacher. They had heard that he was a brilliant man, a gifted scholar, and their congregation was made up of largely professional folks, all black folks, and they wanted somebody that everybody in the town could look up to who would be somebody impressive and scholarly. They were not looking for someone who was going to rock the boat in any way. But there they were, living in Montgomery, Alabama, in 1947, living in a town where the Confederate flag flew high over the town hall, where white police officers inflicted violence on the black members of the community with impunity, where the education and the housing and the opportunities available for black people in the town were far inferior to those available to their white peers. It was there in Montgomery, Alabama, where Vernon Johns arrived, and he found he could not tolerate the treatment that he and his fellow black folks in the town were enduring. And as he stayed there, these realities started to enter into his preaching, much to the chagrin of the leaders and the people of Dexter Avenue Baptist. When a young black man from the church was killed during a traffic stop by a white police officer, you might have heard stories similar to this, the sermon title he put up for the week was Creative Homicide. When two white Montgomery police officers raped a black woman, Reverend Johns encouraged her to press charges, something that had never been done before. And that week, the sign outside the church announced the title of the upcoming sermon, What If the Rapists Are White? 1947. Now, this wasn't exactly what the leaders of the church had had in mind when they brought Reverend Johns to their pulpit. And one of the deacons was said to remark after that last sermon, I couldn't have come up with this in a bad dream. <laughs> Reverend Johns was stirring things up. He was being heard by both white people and black people there in Montgomery, and they were taking notice of the realities he was bringing out to light that they all knew were there. He was telling his congregation that this kind of treatment was going to continue to happen until they put a stop to it. 
It was a little while later when one of the deacons of the church, Deacon Hill, was killed when he dared to intervene when a group of white police officers was savagely beating a black man in town. Deacon Hill was killed, and Reverend John said he had finally found something worth living for and worth dying for. That week, the sign outside the church announcing the Sunday sermon title read, Is it safe to murder Negroes? It was Reverend John's last sermon at Dexter Avenue Baptist. After the police took him literally from the pulpit that Sunday, the deacons cast a unanimous vote and fired Reverend John's from his ministry at Dexter Avenue Baptist. He went on to travel around the country as an itinerant guest preacher, but never again finding a full-time position. A little while later, the deacons of Dexter Avenue Baptist met again, this time to talk through and begin their search for a new minister. They still wanted a learned man, a scholar, an intellect, someone that the people of the church and the town could look up to. But this time they wanted somebody younger, somebody they could mold and shape, as they put it, somebody they could control. So they went looking for a new graduate from seminary, and they indeed hired a young 26-year-old man, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) Way to go. It didn't turn out the way they expected. (laughs) As Dr. King went on to lead the Montgomery bus boycott that sparked the beginning of the civil rights movement that changed their country for the better. Reverend Johns had made a way, literally, with his body, with his voice, with his courage for Dr. Martin Luther King. Without Vernon Johns, there would be no Martin Luther King. I believe that without the Reverend John Cummins and the people of First Universalist in 1965, there'd be no racial justice ministry of our church now in 2018. I believe without the sanctuary movement of the 80s here in our church and in the city, that there'd be no sanctuary movement of this moment. Without Stonewall, there'd be no marriage equality. Without so many quiet, unknown ancestors, there would be none of us and the opportunities that we share and the dreams that we dream. It is our responsibility as people of faith, as long haul people of faith, Not to always be Martin Luther King or Vernon Johns, but to be who we are in our own particular and important ways. To take up the gift we have been given by our ancestors of a place in this world and to continue to do our part to make space and to make a place for the next generation. A little over a week ago, I got a phone call, as did did all of the ministers here at First Universalist and many other white clergy in town. We got a call asking us if we would show up for a direct action that the Black Visions Collective was planning for Super Bowl Sunday. The Black Visions Collective is the new incarnation of the Minneapolis Black Lives Matter chapter. It's reset and restarted full of the wisdom and experience and talent of the black leaders that have founded it. The call was a clear ask, an invitation. Would we, white folks, be willing to risk arrest and use our bodies as literal shields to create a safer environment so that the message of the Black Visions Collective could be heard. After a lot of discernment of prayer and talking with our ministerial and our leadership team here at First Universalist, with colleagues and with my family, I said yes to this call. And I want to tell you that if you ever find yourself tempted to think, I don't know, the protests where Black Lives Matter or Greenpeace or Earth First, when they shut down an oil well or a highway or a light rail, if you ever think these are just disorganized moments of rage or a tantrum, let me tell you that it is far different than that. 
Each of these actions takes the energy and talent and resources of hundreds and hundreds of people. So just for example, this past Sunday where we shut down the light rail, the light rail that had been taken over just for folks going to see the Super Bowl, taken away from the people of our city. When we shut the light rail down for 90 minutes on the afternoon of the Super Bowl, it took hundreds and hundreds of people giving their time and talent and resources to make it happen, each one of them absolutely essential to the safety and security of the whole. At the beginning, there were the local organizers who started it all with their imagination and vision. Then there were the leaders from our national and global Black Lives Matter and Black Liberation movements that arrived in town to train and support everyone. There were 17 of us, myself included, who locked themselves to each other and to the light rail platform and were arrested on Sunday. There were folks out there whose whole job was safety and security, people whose job it was to flag down the trains and to let the conductor know there were people on the tracks up ahead. There were lawyers there to answer our questions and to volunteer to represent us if we needed that. There were volunteer medics. There were support people whose job was literally to wipe the noses of the people who were locked in. Super helpful, it was really cold. There were clergy de-escalators whose job was to stand in between the train and the, those of us who were locked in. There were chant leaders and people who taught us how to dress to be outside stationary in sub-zero temperatures. There were drivers who brought us to the action and who picked us up outside the jail when we were released. There were folks who led us in team building and decision making by consensus, which is no small thing. There were people there who helped us ground our bodies and celebrate our successes, people who have donated to the fund that will help pay our fines. There was my wife who was none too happy about the idea of me putting myself in harm's way or getting arrested, who woke up early on Saturday morning all the same and cooked healthy, delicious food for our whole crew. And most importantly of all, there was the team of black folks who spent hour after hour developing their message of outrage and liberation and clarity and joy so that once all of us were locked in, once we were in our place doing our part, their voices could be heard. The message that they created was a powerful one, one that I wish had gotten out even further than I did. And if you want to see the videos, just go to the Black Visions Collective Facebook page or go to my Facebook page and you can watch the videos of these folks and their message. This is a group of people who are so powerful. They will not stop until our city and our world is not just safe, but full of joy and possibility for people of color and trans and queer people for all people. On Sunday, they demanded that we divest from policing and invest in our communities, that we divest from big events for a few and invest in community for all of us, especially in communities of color, in queer and trans communities, for everyone, they said, who is in vastly more need than the people who were in the stadium on Sunday. They are inviting us to imagine a different future, a better future. I'll tell you, I learned so much from participating in this action, and I'll be telling you about it, I'm sure, as I process it you know, over the months ahead. I learned so much from saying yes to the invitation that I was given. And there's one thing, though, in particular I'd want to talk about just briefly this morning. I had an experience in being with this collective of folks where now I know, I know in my body, that it is possible for us to be the people we say we want to be, to build the world we say we want to build. It is actually possible. There we were, 
truly a multiracial, multicultural, intergenerational group of folks who had never met one another before. And in a matter of days, we developed a sense of trust, a community so deep that we could together take risks for justice we had never even imagined. I can tell you it was never really in my idea of what I would do that I would be locked in across a light rail. That was not in my range. But being together with these folks changed me. It changed me for the better because I could lean into the support that was offered, the vision that inspired us. And moving out of my comfort zone, my body physically locked in there, taking part in what we talk about here, welcoming, affirming, and protecting the light in each human heart, listening deeply to where love is calling us next, acting with courage and humility and service to justice, all with a deep commitment to racial justice. That's what was happening out there, all of it literally locked in and spread out against across that rail, we were interconnected, our bodies interconnected across race and class and gender identity and age, each of us depending on one another as if our lives depended on it, which it did, each of us moving as one body, our liberation literally bound up with one another. And there at the center of that ring of protection were black bodies, Black voices, centered, demanding justice and joy, helping us to imagine more even than just racial justice, where one group finally doesn't have to worry about their safety and security and opportunity, but they helped us imagine something more. What would joy look like? Liberation, clarity, possibility. What would it be like to know our place in the family of, the, of things, singing and dancing and demanding our way toward full humanity for each of us? Each of us lifting one another up, each of us doing the part that we can play with our bodies and our lives, each of us making a way for one another and for the generations to come. I know now in my body that this world that we talk about, this world we dream about, it is possible. And I know too that each of us has a critical role to play. Each of us essential to the safety and security and joy of the whole. We need one another with our doubts and our clarity, our honest concerns, our scars and successes. We need all of who we are and all of what we have known, all of the folks who have come before us so that we can move forward saying this is me, in my life, in all my particularities, if we're going to create the future of love and hope we can hardly imagine. We are long haul people of faith. That is who we are and as long haul people of faith, it is our duty to make a way for one another in this world. To literally use our bodies and our lives in whatever way that we can as we inherit the space that has been given to us, as we make a way for those who will come after us. This is gonna be different for each of us. Maybe it means serving or setting up at a memorial reception here. Maybe it means offering a listening ear or a ride or a non-judgmental presence to another person. Maybe it means getting up early to cook for the whole crew or making sure the lunchroom stays safe or wiping someone else's nose. Maybe it means doing our part to keep the lights on here so that this can be a safe place for children and families and elders and folks who are at risk of deportation. It means creating a space where dreams we can't even imagine yet can be dreamed. So whatever your particular place and superpower might be, I know that each of us has a part to play and something to give. Each of us can create a space for those 
who exist now and those who, can who will come after us. Each of us can do that, day after day, choice after choice after choice. May we take up this charge. May it be so. Amen.